Romans 1, 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, I mean the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, ma malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteousness, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for today. God, I thank you so much for bringing us all together. God, I pray for Kevin as he brings his word today. God, I pray that in all things that we learn today that we just glorify your name and just learn more about you. In your name, amen. Amen, amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. It's nice to see a lot of students. I know that a lot of the campus ministries have um, retreats this weekend, so it's nice to see some of you guys uh, making it here this morning. I hope you guys have been praying for the, the different campus ministries and their various retreats. These are usually uh, pretty important events for them as far as uh, uh, reaching people and uh, seeing the, the ministry grow. So if you, if you think about it today, say a, say a prayer for, for, for what God's doing at some of those retreats today. It's pretty, it's pretty important. And um, I know that you know, when I was in college, um, the, the fall getaway that I went on uh, my, my junior year was pretty instrumental in getting me into some solid Christian community while I was in college. So uh, please think about doing that. So anyway, uh, again, you guys heard from me earlier when I was doing announcements. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, appreciate you guys uh, being here with us today. We're, we're working through um, over the course of, well, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure when we're going to be done, but I'm, I'm aiming before the start of next school year, uh, the book of Romans. <laughs> and so... Um, we are, are finishing up Romans chapter 1 uh, this morning, and um, I told you guys last week if you were here, and, and one of the reasons why I said what I said last week was because I knew that we would have a decent amount of people missing today, um, that, that the, the sermon this Sunday was going to be a continuation of what we talked about last week. And so if you missed last week, you can always hop online. Um, our sermons are available online, and you'll be able to listen to kind of what we talked about last week. But I'm going to read the text from last week to you because, as I said earlier, they, they really build on each other, and it's an important to understand the full train of thought of what Paul is saying here so that we know where we're going. Okay, so starting in verse 18, this is what Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. 
so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And so, um, I said last week as we were starting out that as we moved into verse 18 and really for the remainder of, you know, the first half of the book of Romans that everything we were going to be seeing from here on out was Paul kind of expanding upon the thesis of what he had said right before them, which is why he is not ashamed of the gospel. And if you look at verses 16 and 17, he, he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the, is the power of God onto salvation, meaning that he says he's, he's been explaining to the Romans why he hasn't come to visit them. And one of the objections to why Paul had not visited Rome yet was that he was ashamed of the gospel and he was ashamed of the message amongst the cultural elite of Rome. And Paul's response to them at the very beginning of this letter is, absolutely not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the mission of the gospel and what Christ has called me to. I I am fully prepared to be able to give a defense for it. And the rest of the book of Romans begins to be that defense of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And so Paul says, look, the gospel is power. It's work in my own life and in the work of others' lives has strongly impacted me. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed to talk about that amongst the philosophers of Rome and the, the wise men of, their de- of our day. And then last week, we kind of began to work through right, where Paul thinks the starting point in sharing the gospel with someone is. Right? And, I, and I mentioned to you guys that most of the time when we're sharing what Jesus has done in our lives or what he might have, have done for us, the launching point most of the time for us is we start talking about the love of God. But if you study out the book of Romans and see where Paul starts, where does he start? He starts with the wrath of God. He says, he says that the, 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 the wrath of God is aimed directly at men and women because of their sinfulness. That, that is the starting point when sharing the good news with people. And so I, 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 I talked a little bit last week where we tend to have this idea that the, uh, this idea of wrath, and, and more specifically the wrath of God, is a bad thing, something that we need to try to avoid. We don't want to talk about God's wrath. It might push someone away from God. It might you know, disturb them. It might give, this, give us this false picture of God. We don't want to talk too much about wrath, but... I, I tried to kind of make this point last week that when we're talking about the wrath of God, the wrath of God is not something for us to need to try to bring, bring better public relations to, okay? Because when we understand God's wrath properly, it's not a bad thing because God's wrath is always pointed towards evil, injustice, and wickedness throughout the totality of Scripture, And most of us in this room would agree that things like murder, incest, rape, etc., you can come up with a full litany of things that we might consider to be evil, that a just and righteous response towards those evil and those criminal acts is a good thing, even if it's done out of wrath and anger. And so my point being is that when we study the scriptures, we see God's wrath being directed towards things that are evil and wicked. Therefore, God's wrath is not something that we should not want to talk about or want to avoid, but instead should something that we should celebrate because it means our God is good and he hates evil and wickedness. And so that God's evil and, and God hates evil and wickedness and his wrath is always directed towards it. 
And he says there in those verses that we looked at last week that the wrath of God is aimed at you and I because our sin is in direct rebellion. And according to Paul, our sin suppresses the truth of who God is. That in some way, right, when, when you and I sin and rebel against God, we're suppressing the truth of who he is. We're robbing him of glory. We're robbing him of his proper place. We're robbing him of the attention and honor he deserves. And therefore, we're wicked and rebellious. And therefore, because God hates injustice and wickedness, you and I, and in our sin, are objects of God's wrath and deserving of it. If we're honest with ourselves, this, this inevitably becomes the problem for all of us because we think we're better than we really are. Right? We, could, we can compare ourselves to someone like Hitler or the crazy guy that leads North Korea or the people leading genocide in various parts of Africa or you know, the people we see in the news that commit atrocities. And we, we compare ourselves to those people and we're like, well, I'm not that bad. But if the standard of good is God and God alone. We don't meet that standard. Therefore, we find ourselves in rebellion and deserving of God's wrath. And so we stand before him, according to Paul, as the object of his wrath. Now, a a common objection to this, this starting point in saying, hey, the, the whole human race begins as objects of God's wrath because of their sin, because there's one thing that every culture and every human being has in common, we all sin. A common objection to that, and Paul anticipates it, is this question, right? What about those who have never heard about God or don't know who he is? Right? It's, a, it's a, a pretty simple objection. And Paul was ready for that objection, and he answers that. He says, look, creation is sufficient to show us all we need to know about God. Right? I share with you guys Psalms chapter 19, verse 1. I'll share it with you guys again. Right? David writes this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, meaning that in creation itself, you and I can look out over creation and God has sufficiently given us all we need simply by the fact that he created the universe to understand that he exists and that he's out there for us to find and follow and that we don't need anything else, that God has given us sufficient information because creation displays God's power and attributes, therefore man is without excuse. So Paul then went on to say that men, although they knew God, did not honor him as God, and professing to be wise, they became fools. And ultimately, that culminated in them beginning to worship creation rather than creator. And so I'm going to take a minute, because this is what I want to focus in on in our review from last week on what I focused in on last week, is that when Paul is saying that the, the, the main problem of mankind is that that God created all things so that we might know him and worship him and we as human beings in our quest to be our own gods and wise begin to worship the things God created instead of the creator himself. And I talked about how crazy that is, right? Because, Because the beauty of creation, right, is it gives us a glimpse at God's power, but it is not God's full power. Right? It gives us a glimpse of God's creative genius, but it is not the full creativity and genius of God. It is simply a picture of God's ability to show us who he is. It gives us glimpses, and yet we worship the things God created. 
right? And some of us in here, and I know this is like where we immediately run, we see that Paul uses the language of like birds and creeping things. We're like, well, I'm not, you know, I don't come from an Egyptian background where I, I, I worship all these different gods that were attributed to animals, or, you know, I'm not into Native American animalism, or, you know, I'm not into Hindu worship or Roman and Greek mythology, and so I don't, I don't have to really worry about that. The, the problem is, is if you properly understand what Paul is saying here, worshiping anything other than God means by definition you are worshiping something that is created. Right? The best example of this that I can give you and I is that many of us in this room struggle with fear of man on some level. Right? We crave the approval of others. And because we crave that approval, it causes us to do things that we probably wouldn't even normally do and we often know defies God's law towards us and his commands and what he has said is right and good for us. Causes us to do the very things that we might even consider evil. If you allow yourself right, to be controlled in some way by another human being, that human being is created, therefore you're worshiping something other than God. Right, that the problem with idol worshiping is, is it's not just golden calves as we see in the Old Testament. That idol worship can be summed up with sports. It can be summed up with entertainment. It can be summed up with intellectualism. You can worship uh, drugs and alcohol. You can worship having a good time. You can worship having friends. You can worship having uh, people like you and popularity. Right? The list goes on and on and on of things that human beings over the course of human history have chosen to follow and put as the most important thing in their lives ahead of God. Therefore, they're worshiping creation rather than creator, thus deserving of God's wrath. That is Paul's thesis throughout this entire thing. And, and one of the things I tried to get across last week, and hopefully you guys kind of saw this, is that when I say, like, you know, we often talk about, especially within the church, we have certain struggles or sins that we struggle with. We might call them vices, right? And the point I want to get across to, uh, to you guys, right, and to myself, is that these struggles in and of themselves, yes, they're struggles and vices, but they're not just vices because they're things that you worship. They're things that draw your attention and gaze away from the Creator and instead calls you to worship the creation. And so this is what we looked at last week, all right? So this week, the focus of Paul's argument is going to stay in the same vein, but it's going to shift a little bit. And, and his argument on the worship of idols and how it affects us is going to shift more to what I would consider the horizontal plane. And let me describe that to you. Idol worship always affects us in two different ways, which Paul is outlining here. Right? The first way is vertically, you and I to God. How idol worship affects our relationship with the God of the universe. And, and so primarily what we saw last week is that it ultimately ends up in you and I being deserving of God's wrath towards us because of our rebellion. That's the way our relationship is affected vert vertically. Right? It fractures the, the relationship and the ability to worship God properly. But if we understand sin properly, if we're not honoring and serving and worshiping God the way we were designed, what inevitably ends up happening is as we're worshiping the things around us that God has created, it's also going to affect our relationships. 
It's going to fracture our life here on earth. It's going to, in some ways, mar and rob us of joy personally as well because things get messed up so quickly, right? Relationships break. People hurt one another. Confusion and heartbreak. And so let's start working through the text and looking at how specifically this kind of starts working itself out. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Now my community group was, was working through some of this stuff this past week and one person in our group asked a, a really good question. Um, they said, hey, does God still pour out his wrath on people and what does that look like? And, and, and what, what they meant by that question was, is, hey, if, if, if Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God, what does it look like for God's wrath to still be poured out today? Because typically when you and I think about God's wrath, we think of you know, pictures like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Where God's like, okay, I'm just gonna bring fire and brimstone down on these people and completely destroy them. Okay, and so what we see here is the last picture of how when God gives us over and when God starts directing his wrath towards you and I, what that actually looks like, right? It doesn't look like God sending a meteor, right, or striking you down with lightning, okay? What does God say here in his word? Look, what we see here is that God's wrath looks like this. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, That term gave them up in the Greek is a judicial term used to describe the handing over of a prisoner to his or her sentence. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying. We as humans, when we start worshiping the creation rather than the creator, our desires for them continuously start to kind of grow out of control. Okay? Many of you guys can relate with this in some way. If you have some habitual sin, you know that the more you find yourself in it, the harder it gets to stop doing it. You know, if you have a, like if you talk to an alcoholic, right, they start to become dependent upon that because the more they drink, the more they want to drink, the more they need it, the more they, 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 they want it and they seek it out and they start seeking it out in more and more uh, ridiculous ways. Right? Most sin doesn't start at this point where we would consider it like drastic. It starts as maybe innocent or a small um, kind of portion of our lives where we start to turn our affections towards something else until it kind of starts to snowball and spiral out of control. Right? People that struggle with sexual addiction, right, oftentimes as, as young boys when I'm counseling men, it started as seeing an image or, or viewing pornography accidentally when they were in middle school to where it spiraled out of control to a full-on sex addiction by the time they reach college. Right, that, that some of this kind of starts this way, but that our desires and our affections to worship these things tend to grow over time. If you guys don't agree me, with me, you, how many of you guys spend a Saturday afternoon at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium? There are many people there that are worshiping. There are many people whose lives are ruined if the Gators lose a football game on a Saturday. And their lives are pretty awful sometimes. Right? If you guys saw that game last night, I didn't. It looked bad enough from just the, score, the scoreboard right, as I was following it along. Right? That as we tend to kind of worship these things, right, it continues to, continues to kind of grow and spiral out of control. And when left unchecked by God, chaos can ensue. 
And so the way that God pours his wrath out on humanity is not by just bringing fire and brimstone or some sort of natural disaster or whatever else, that you can know that God has poured his wrath out on somebody and that if they are sinning, their sinning continues to remain unchecked and they aren't convicted by their sin and that they are left to their own devices and live however they like unrestrained. One of the things I try to consistently remind some of you younger guys in here when you, you sit down with me, right, and you, you, you know, you'll be confessing some sin to me, and, and sometimes, you know, there'll be tears involved, and there's just brokenness, and they're like, I hate feeling this way, and I'm like, don't. Right? The best thing for you is that God has broken you over, over your sin. It means that, God, that you are not an object of God's wrath, but that God is not done with you, and he is convicting you of your, of your sin so that you might repent and return to him. If you are sinning and you're not broken over it, the scripture tells me that God has given you over to yourself. That his wrath is currently directed towards you. And that is a much scarier place to be. Now, God's wrath then, as we see here in verses 24 and 25, means that he allows us to go unchecked, uncontrolled, with no shame in our sin. And he allows them to do that because they exchanged the truth of knowing him and placing him as supreme in their life. They've exchanged that for the creation, for a lie, for created things. That, and, and so what we need to understand here is what Paul is saying is God does not share his glory. He doesn't share that with someone else. God's not interested playing number two to, to Florida football. He's not interested in playing number two to your boyfriend or girlfriend. He's not interested in playing number two to your education at the University of Florida. God doesn't play the second most important thing to your life to your kids. God doesn't play the role as second most important thing to your life next to your job. That that is not how he operates. That because he is the creator of the universe and created you in his image and likeness, he is worthy of your full attention and honor. And he will give you over to the things that you run after if you do not place him in his proper place. And the results of this are not only a fracture of our relationship with God, but it also fractures everything else here on earth as well. It says if you look at the text that their hearts went to impurity and ultimately led to the dishonoring of their bodies. Now, I want to take a, a second to kind of try to explain some of this. This means that when, when you and I begin to start worshiping something, the deeper into that we get, if it's not fixed upon God, the more irrational and crazy it is. How many of you guys have ever been or know somebody that's been in a relationship that was toxic and you can't figure out why that person is still in it? Right? You know, ladies in particular, I'm going to call you guys out right now because I've been in ministry now for 10 years. I see this a lot. I'll be talking with you and you're like, you're so sweet and you love the Lord and you're with this loser. Right? He's, he's just a, he's, he's a fully grown little boy. And, and I'll be talking with you, and, you're, and, and you'll be like, well, you know, I can't get him to come to church. I'm like, why? Well, you know, he was up late last night playing video games. And, you know, he was out with his buddies, and he, he can't be here. And I'm like, oh, I was like, you know, that's fun for you? 
well, you know, he's a pretty good guy. Okay, well, like, what, what else does he have going on? Like, where's, where's he working? Oh, he doesn't have a job. Okay. So he doesn't have a job. He plays video games. Like, how does he afford things? Well, you know, I've been helping him out. Oh, you're not a girlfriend. You're a mom. How does he treat you? Well, he kind of ignores me, right, unless it's convenient for him. Why are you with him? Well, I just, I believe, I believe in him, right? You've, you've become so entranced by this idea of being with somebody and needing somebody to complete you in some way, shape, or form, and you've looked for that outside of God, that the lunacy, as I say that out loud, some of you guys are laughing, yet some of you have found yourself in that very situation at times, or seen people in that very situation. That as we begin to, to worship things other than God, and God gives us over to it, we start dishonoring ourselves, even things that we consider, that's lunacy, why would I do that? Right, here, here is an ultimate truth that you guys need to understand about sin and God's commands. God's commands to us are not bad things, they're good things. They are designed for our good and our joy. Right, if God says that sex before the context of marriage is a bad thing, there's a reason why he's saying that. It's not like God's like, oh, I just, you know, I, don't, I just don't want these guys to have a good time. I want my, my creation to be miserable, and so I'm going to create a set of rules and laws for them to follow to make them miserable. No, God creates rules and laws, right, so that you might be protected and experience the greatest amount of joy you can possibly experience. And to transgress and worship these things outside of him robs you of the greatest amount of joy you could have. Speaking from experience as someone who struggled with an addiction to pornography and having sex outside of marriage before I came to know the Lord, I thought what I was doing in that moment was fun and good. And it made the first year of my marriage very, very difficult. Because I had done all these different things in pursuit of worshiping sex, right, that then marred the image of what God had actually created sex to be in the confines of marriage. And my wife graciously and lovingly had to walk through that with me. Right? If I had simply known that God's commands to me were good and for my own good and for the sake of my marriage even one day, I would have known that there would have been a greater joy to have been experienced once we entered that first year of marriage, which was not having to walk through that very, very difficult season in the first year of my marriage. As God gives us over, it inevitably leads to chaos where we actually harm ourselves and dishonor ourselves in the way that we live. Because our sin is unchecked and it leads to dishonor. So the question is, is like how? How can that kind of manifest that? We've been talking about that a little bit, but Paul gives an example in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, 
Let me start with this. We live in a period and time in American history and in reality, human history, that holding to a biblical worldview is not going to win you a popularity contest. And it's probably not going to win you a political contest either. But the question that we must ask ourselves over and over again if we're claiming to be a follower of God and a follower of Jesus Christ is what holds more weight, my opinion or God's word? That's where we need to start with any, with any argument, with anything that we're going to say. What is right, the pinnacle of truth? Is it the opinions of men and women and my peers or even my own thoughts? Or is it what God has revealed to me in his word? Now, Paul could have given a number of examples on how unchecked sin and lust ultimately manifests itself. But he gives a pretty clear example here in the text, and that's this, homosexuality. Okay? He says this, right? Women exchanged natural relations, referring to lesbianism, right? Doing the things that were contrary to nature. And and it says somebody wants to make an argument that says, well, you know, lesbianism is condemned by God, but not homosexuality amongst men, right? He moves on and says this, that men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, receiving the due penalty of their error. Okay, now, this is talking about the self-destructive nature of sin. Right, how if sin and our lusts continue to go unchecked, what it can ultimately kind of evolve into, or devolve, depending on what terminology you want to use for it. Right, that the logical progression of this kind of continues, right? And it says that ultimately that men and women were designed for one another to enjoy one another within the confines of marriage, but that within the lusts, right, and the worship of sexuality and the pursuit of what we want, that it can ultimately kind of evolve into this worship of whatever kind of sexual promiscuity that you're looking for and can manifest itself in one of the ways in homosexuality. Right, Paul's kind of repeating a, th- a theme that he had put out in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, right, where God is not mocked that if we reap something, we will sow that thing. That if we reap the worship of sex and sexual identity, we will reap what we sow. And all sin reaps consequences. Right? And, and the common argument that we tend to hear over time is like, it, it's wrong for Christians to claim that homosexuality is a sin because it's not any different than, than, than regular marriage or whatever else it may be. Let me, let me give you some statistics right, on what is true of those within the LGBT community. Again, this is not meant to be me bashing LGBT community or whatever else, but I just want to give you some statistics so that you can understand that God's word is true here. According to a study in the United Kingdom in 2008, the study found that rates of depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, suicidal thoughts, drug abuse, and drug abuse were higher amongst the LGBT community than their heterosexual peers. Now, obviously, there are a litany of reasons for that. But that when God gives us over to our lusts and our passions, we reap what we sow, and that is one of the many consequences. And we've been told over the course of the last 30 years of my life that if we normalized it, those numbers would go down. Guess what? They have not. 
that in mainstream society, as homosexuality has not only been affirmed by our culture, but celebrated in many ways, those numbers have not changed. Because the reality is, what is happening here is that the truth about God is being exchanged for a lie. And that Paul is stating that when people are given over to the lusts of their passions, they respond in ways that rob themselves of joy and create a wake of self-destruction. Guys, I have a personal story that follows the same vein. For the first 19 and a half years of my life, I worshiped myself. Everything I did, everything I desired, was revolved around making much of me. Even if I was your friend, we were friends in so much as it made much of me. And if that stopped, we stopped being friends. Right? People came and went from my life to be used for my own glory and my own, right, self-seeking satisfaction. This manifested itself for me by the time I got to college, I started falling into drug and alcohol abuse because I became unhappier and unhappier and unhappier with who I am and I listened and listened to what would make me, by the world, what would make me happy and found nothing there. And as God gave me over to my lusts, the more self-destructive my lifestyle became. I woke up in a pool of my own vomit in a house in Morgantown, West Virginia, being told by my friends that they thought I was going into shock. And they wouldn't call the ambulance for me. Now you would think that would be enough of a wake-up call for most people to stop heading down the road that they would head down. I finished the rest of the drugs that night that had sent me into that same reaction the night before. Because as God gave me over, I continued to worship what I wanted to worship, and that is what I chose to do, and my lifestyle became progressively more self-destructive. It resulted in an arrest. It resulted in almost flunking out of college. It resulted in me almost dying one night. It resulted in the end of dozens of relationships and friendships and a terrible relationship with my father. Because inevitably when God gives us over to ourselves, we reap self-destruction. Now, I want to talk for just a second about Paul's example here because I know that many of us in this room come from different backgrounds Right, that some of us in this room even struggle with same-sex attraction. And I want to start by saying this. I gave an entire sermon on this topic in 2015. We, we did a sermon series where the church asked me questions, and I did my best to try to answer them biblically. I, I believe you can find that on the website, okay? And so if you want a more in-depth study of the topic of, of how the Bible talks about homosexuality and the church's response to that, I would encourage you to go online and find that. It was, it was done in the fall of 2015, Okay, now, I want to briefly touch on a few things, though, when addressing this text, because this is one of the clearest passages in Scripture where God condemns homosexual behavior. Okay? First thing, right, look at verse 24. 
says that God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body amongst themselves. Okay, so, verse 24 is a drunk drawer of term, terminology by, by Paul using that language, basically saying that when God gives you over, right, there is a ton of things that you can do that find yourself in this lifestyle where you're going to be dishonoring your body. That, that homosexuality is not the only act, right, sexually that dishonors yourself and creates issues. Right, some of the things listed throughout scripture are fornication, masturbation, adultery, etc. And that homosexuality is just one example of idolatrous behavior. It's just one manifestation of it. There has been a tendency in the church over the past hundred years to treat homosexuality as a sin that is far worse than any other. And they will use this passage as a proof text for that. And what this passage is, is not a proof text for just homosexuality being a sin, but that all sin in general is a problem and we need to deal with it equally. And so let me start by saying this. If, you, if you're in here this morning and you struggle with same-sex attraction and the church in some way has made you feel like less of a human being and unable to come, right, hear the gospel and the good news, or if you have a friend that's been that way too, I want to apologize to you this morning. And I pray that you would do the same if you have someone that's in, that, that's in that situation. Because the church is supposed to be a place where all of us can come on the same equal playing field, objects of God's wrath, and instead receive the mercy given to us in Jesus Christ. And the church has failed miserably in this area over the years. Now, that being said, the second thing we need to, to realize, and I, guys, I'm 31 Okay, so I've grown up in a time where, where homosexuality was legitimized, legitimized in, 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 in the American culture and celebrated. Right? And we use terminology like it's just love and we need to love one another. Guys, homosexuality is a sin. Clearly laid out for us here in Romans chapter 1. Now, just because it is a sin doesn't mean we hate the sinner, but we must be loyal to the scripture, and we must be loyal to what God has revealed to us. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. That's not how scripture works, right? All sin is idolatrous and worthy of punishment. But if you in some way, shape, or form have tried to find a way to legitimize homosexuality as not being a sin, you're not just not loving somebody, but you're co-opting and helping to lead them away from God and the truth. As a matter of fact, and this is the fascinating thing to me, that God's word says that whenever we're worshiping something else other than him, we're suppressing the truth, Guess what ends up happening when this starts doing? When we, when we start supporting things that God has directly prohibited. We start denying his authority. We start denying the authority of the word and we suppress the truth. Right, if there are churches that are out there supporting same-sex marriage and relationships, they're doing the very thing that Paul says those that are underneath the wrath of God do. They're further proving 
the truth of God's word, not less so. Because they are suppressing the truth of who God is. So what is the call of the church in addressing those who are living in an openly homosexual lifestyle or struggling with same-sex attraction? Some of this is taken from the sermon that I preached a couple years ago, okay? First thing that you need to do is if you have a friend or you yourself are struggling with this, right, or you're trying to help someone walk through this, you need to remember what your goals are, okay? Remember that when, when we're dealing with an issue like this, and, and, and admittedly homosexuality is an extremely difficult, right, kind of thing to walk through because here's why. It's an identity issue for people, right? I struggle with anger, right? But I don't ever introduce myself or identify myself as a constantly angry person. But if someone struggles with same-sex attraction or has openly embraced homosexuality, they have attached that to the identity of who they are as a human being. Now, I would argue at the same time that you shouldn't tie your identity to heterosexuality either. Because it could still lead down a path that's crazy. Right? But that if you've attached your identity to something like this, it makes it ingrained it a little bit more difficult. And so the first thing you need to remember is what your goals are, that we're dealing with human people that are made in the image and likeness of God and therefore intrinsically have value because of that. We are after the person because God loves that person. Guys, the primary way that the church has failed in this arena over the last hundred years is they've turned this debate or issue into an issue of politics rather than to an issue of people. Right? Like, I've heard this over the course of time, especially from my grandfather. I used to say this all the time. I, I, they just need to see their sin. They just need to know that they're sinners. And, 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 and here's the reality. I want for all of us to see our sins so that we might repent of it and go before God with it. And in reality, you should be repenting of your own sin and open enough about that before you start addressing someone else's. Right? Jesus says to get the plank out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of someone else's. So that you walk into that situation with the proper humility and love and attention that you're supposed to have for that person. But as the church, right, we're called to treat both the truth of God in this issue, but also treat the people with love. And that homosexuality is not just a political issue, it's an issue that involves real people, and if we don't love them well, we will give a terrible reflection of the love of Christ. And so when I say what you need to do is you need to reset your goals, what I mean by that is your job is to not to fix the sinner, but lovingly share the truth about homosexuality being a sin, and then lovingly share the truth about what God has done for them in Christ. Your job is to not win a debate. Your job is not to convince them and conform them to a particular worldview. Our hope for everyone, everyone, guys, not just those that find themselves in a homosexual lifestyle. Our hope for every human being on this earth is that there would be transformed hearts that have submitted to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and those transformed hearts would then lead to transformed lives. 
if you try to convert somebody to a worldview, you're no different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The real work of changing somebody's heart is done by Christ, not by you. That is what the scripture teaches. Don't dare put a level of responsibility on yourself that belongs to God and God alone. Now guys, I have seen people in openly gay lifestyles come to know Jesus and repent and rescued from that sin. It can and does happen. So some practical ways you can love on people. Don't have all the answers. Hear people out, listen, be patient, dialogue, talk to people. Right, when I talk to people that have been, that struggle with same-sex attraction, I ask them, what, was, what were some of the ways that you were hurt by those in the church? They said, I was talked at, not talked to. I was preached at, not listened to. That the primary way we can love on people and display the love of Christ is to actually be in a genuine relationship with them, not just yell at them. And then you need to be praying for people and for yourself and trust that Jesus is sufficient for them, just like he was for you. Let me get back to the text. Look at verses 28 through 32. And guys, this is super important, right? Because it would, be su it would be super easy to focus in on just homosexuality when talking about the wrath of God being revealed to us. It would be super easy to do this. And this is what makes me so frustrated with the way the church has kind of treated sin over the last couple hundred years, right? As they focus in on this passage and they focus in on sin, then look at what Paul does, starting in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and then look at what he's going to do next evil covetousness malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they are gossips slanderers haters of god insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval to those who practice them. And so since mankind does not see fit to acknowledge God, God gives them over to a debased mind, and all manner of unrighteousness becomes manifested in human beings. So for those only worried about homosexuality being the chief amongst sins, look at all the other things that Paul lists here, right? Evil, covetousness. By the way, anybody in this room ever not coveted what someone else has? You're a liar. Malice, envy, murder. Oh, I'm safe from that one. Jesus says that if you've ever been angry with somebody, you've committed a murder in your heart already. Strife, deceit. Gossips, uh, I mean, like we have entire television shows dedicated to gossip now on television. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, everyone's guilty of that one. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, 
That is a long list of things that it says God gives us over to. Sexual sin is not the only way that God gives us over to our debased minds. Right? Ultimately, what Paul is talking about here is theologically known as depravity or total depravity. Okay? And what that means is, is not all that we do is bad, but all that we do is tainted by badness. Right? It's the idea of even if you're trying to do something good, it's tainted by wickedness in some way, shape, or form. Let me give you guys an example. How many of you guys that are students in here did some sort of volunteer hours for an organization during high school? Okay, most of the room. How many of you guys did that because you genuinely cared about the organization that you were involved with or because you were trying to put something nice on your application so that UF would accept you? If you did it because you wanted to be accepted by UF or another college, put your hand up in the air. 90% of you guys. Right? Right? Even when you try to do good, it's motivated for selfish reasons. That's what Paul is talking about here. That, that when he gives you over, and you've been turned over to self-worship and self-love, that's how it manifests itself. That even doing good and serving, right, leads to, right, self-worship and wickedness. That it affects everything. And then when he gets to verse 32, look what he says. That they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That they know right from wrong, the moral law is written on our hearts, and yet disobey it. And not only do they disobey it, but they encourage people to do so. If you don't agree that this is true, let me give you a really e easy example. Think about reality TV stars and music stars. Some of them, I'm not going to name any names because I don't think that's right. Some of them don't really have a whole lot of talent. And yet some of them get albums and television shows and things that make them money and bring them into the spotlight, not because of an inherent talent or skill that they have, but because they do ridiculous things that are debased and grab people's attention. They'll twerk, they'll make a sex tape, they'll cuss out the president on Twitter, right? they'll do various things that draw attention, and then we celebrate them and list them as celebrities when they have no real talent or skill to be excited about. Because that's what we do. Right, that as God gives us over in his wrath to our sin, we don't just deny the truth of who he is. We celebrate the sin and make much of it. We throw parties. We throw parades. We give people television shows. We give them money. We invite them to come speak. All because they have denied the truth of who God is and their actions and what they do. And so as we looked at the text over the course of the last two weeks in Romans 1. I think there's three things that I want you guys to kind of be pulling out of this and thinking through. Okay? Here's the first one. God's original design for creation is now marred and broken by sin. It means everything, guys. 
God's original design and, and intention for relationships are now marred by sin and wickedness. God's original design and, and intention for sexuality is now marred by sin and brokenness. God's original design and intention right, for where you would find love is now marred by sin and broken. God's design and intention for work is now broken and marred by sin. Right, the list can go on and on and on of God's created order being marred and broken by sin. And that you and I participate in this and therefore are worthy and deserving of God's wrath. And we should realize it and it should cause us to fear and tremble over our sin. As your sin is a big deal. It's not just a small struggle, right? Sin is serious. That we're so quick to run to God's love that we don't take God's wrath seriously and we need to. Now the second thing I want us to notice is this. Some of you guys in here read this this morning, you're like, well, I don't struggle with any of this or I used to struggle with this. And there's not an exhaustive list there of all the sins that we could possibly commit. And so there's a tendency or an easiness to become self-righteous. And that in and of itself is sin. <laughs> and so what this should cause in you and I is to instead examine ourselves and ask the Lord to reveal to us where are we still unrepentant of our sin. Lord, reveal it to me and grant me repentance. Don't allow me to think that I have arrived. Don't allow me to become self-righteous. Right? Don't allow me to boast in my own performance, but instead boast in the performance of you, Jesus, alone. And the third thing I want you to notice is this. The last two weeks, if you guys have been here any period of time, know that my tone has been a little bit different over here, up here the last two weeks, because what we're talking about is serious and grave. Right, the reality is, is that you and I are underneath the wrath of God except for one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. That unless you are in him, unless you by repentance and faith have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Everything that we're talking about describes you. And it should do one thing that as we study this, it should motivate you to fear, but then it should motivate you and I to this, to worship God because of what he has done for us in Christ. That the good news of what Christ has done is that Jesus has absorbed God's wrath for you and I. That he took on the full wrath of God and instead credited to us Jesus' righteousness. That you and I, if we are in Christ, are declared not guilty for our sin, even though we are guilty. That we're given the Holy Spirit as a helper to help us walk through this life and put sin to death. And that we're given the Holy Spirit so that we might honor and worship and know him. That knowing the bad news shouldn't cause us to sit here and wallow and be upset 
and cry and be depressed. It should instead cause inside of us to rejoice all the more in Jesus because of what he's done for us. That where there was no way before, there was no way that you and I, who were the objects of God's wrath, unworthy of his love and attention, could ever earn God's love and favor, could ever be adopted as his sons and daughters, Jesus Christ made a way. That as he went willingly to the cross, he took all of your sin, past, present, and future, and nailed it to the cross, as Paul says in the book of Colossians. And that the certificate of death that, that, of debt that you and I owe for our sin has been paid in full. And so we're going to take communion here in just a moment. Right? And as I try to remind you guys every week, we take communion not as just some practice here. We, we don't do it just because just it's part of the liturgy here. We do it because it's an opportunity to confess and repent of sin. And then instead of wallowing in that sin, we walk up and take communion and we rejoice that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that sin already. And we worship him for what he's done. And so as we start this next time of reflection, repent of your sin. And then worship Jesus Christ who took on God's wrath on your behalf so that you might be adopted as his sons and daughters. And as you take communion, worship him because it's already been done. You're not trying to work and earn God's favor. You're not trying to work and earn his forgiveness. Jesus already purchased that for you and he gave his flesh and his blood and poured it out so that that might be so. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that in my own heart it is at times difficult for me to wrestle with the bad news of who I really am. Wicked, rebellious, and deserving of your wrath. And yet it is true of me. Father, it is true of all of us in this room that we are not worthy of your love and your affections toward us. And yet you sent your son to die in our place and absorb your wrath. Thank you so much. Lord, help us to continuously, daily die to ourselves and live to you and worship you and you alone because you are worthy. Lord, may we as a church be marked by a sincere and genuine worship and love of you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the cross, and I ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.